0: Froning here. He's a three-time uh, singles CrossFit champion, two- or three-time team champion, considered the fittest man in the world or in America. He's a stud, all right? And then we're going to have Scott Cagle, who's the pastor at North Star. He's one of my mentors. He's a stud. They're going to be here to sharpen our men. It's on January 13th. Men, I need you to register for that. You get on your church center app. You get online. You register for that. We want you here. Why? Because part of what's going on in the life of this church is we want to make better Men. And we believe that if men are godly men, families, wives, children will follow. Statistically proven that if the man leads the home, the home does better. And so we want to sharpen men. We want to make big Jesus followers of our men. Uh, we, we want, uh, we want you, your family to know that you love King Jesus big. And we want you to know that you can let the enemy, Satan himself, know You are not welcome in my home because there is a man of God guarding this home. That's who we want our men to be. Now, let me tell you what it looks like tangibly. Got a little story last night. So Kendra and Kelsey were down here about 10 o'clock. They were making cookies for tonight's party, right? So I'm at home sitting around in a pair of gym shorts uh, looking over my message. I get up, a terrified phone call from Kendra. Joel, there's somebody in the church. There's a man in the church. I said, okay, okay, it's cool. Where are you at? we just ran outside. We ran outside, but he's in there. We heard him. And I, and I said, I know church can be a little scary sometimes if you're by yourself. No, you don't understand. I got a witness. There's a guy in the church. And I said, okay, I'm coming down there. So I put on my tennis shoes, man. I grabbed my pocket knife. <laughs> I didn't want to load my gun. I don't really want to shoot anybody. And somebody said, well, you, you want to cut somebody? I said, I don't know, you know, but there's a man in the church. All right. So I grabbed my pocket knife. I came down here and they're out the door. I mean, they're terrified. they're Sh- they are shaking, literally. And, and he's in there. He's in there. I said, okay. So I, me and my knife, we go in. I scoured the place, okay? I, I, I came in the sound room, baptism, everywhere. Every, checked every door, went in every closet. Clark was with me. He was about 20 steps behind. I was the sacrificial lamb. <laughs> he, he forgot his pocket knife, so I'm training him. Bring your knife, okay? And so so I go through the whole place. I came out, and I said, I, I said, hey, he, he's, not, he's not in there. Kelsey's like, what are you doing with a knife? I said, I saw it on TV. You lay it like this and it's just slice and shank, slice and shank. So I was ready, okay? So, so I didn't find anybody. Kendra and Kelsey, well, he's in there. I said, well, he'll go home tonight. You know, let's go. We'll have our security team tomorrow. They can shoot him, whatever, okay? So went home this morning. Here it goes again. Kendra's getting ready and she said, Joel, I'm still tore up about that guy being in church. She said, you're going to have to get him put in a new security system or something. I said, if he's already inside, security system ain't going to help him being inside. And so I said, it's going to be okay. Well, she she was mad because I wasn't taking her seriously. Now watch this. I'm ironing my shirt, okay, this shirt. And it dawned on me. She called me at 1055 to tell me that there was a you know, an intruder in the church. At 10.52, I got a butt dial to which I said, hello, hello. She heard my voice in her pocket and thought it was an intruder. Now, I was ready to cut somebody up, and she was ready to put in a security system, okay? Now, I just tell that story, man, that's what we got to be. We got to protect our family. All right, get your pocket knife out and go to town. All right, we're in Acts chapter, uh, we're in the book of Acts called Can I Get a Witness? And in the first four chapters, man, the church is literally on fire, it is a juggernaut, it is not going away, it is only going forward. And and God is doing supernatural things 2,000 years ago in this early church, 120 people that's the early church. And Jesus said, y'all hang out right here. i got to go back to heaven. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. You're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and you're going to be my witnesses. And so it happens. The Holy Spirit visited that church. They began to speak in languages of all the people who had come for the feast of Pentecost. And instantly in a day, thousands of people were born again. This church just grew from its infancy into something supernatural and something enormous. And so it's on the move. And in doing so, the foundation was laid that is so so strong that 2,000 years later, we are meeting in church today because of what they saw and what they did in that first early church. Chapters one through four is incredible, man. It's just going, it's just going. Everything's happening and it's good. And so when I think about this, I think about these first four chapters, what that feels like when things are good. So it describes it in Acts chapter 4. It gives us a little preview. Verse 32, it says, and the group of those who believed, they were one heart and one mind. And no one said that any of his possessions was his own, but everything was held in common. He says, and with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was on them all. For there was no one needy among them because those who were owners of land or houses were selling them and bringing the proceeds from the sales and placing them at the apostles' feet. The proceeds were distributed to each as anyone had need. That's what, that's what a church on fire looks like. That, that's the flavor. That's the church culture. Now it talks about them selling stuff and giving stuff so that nobody had need. Is, is that some kind of a, endorsement of socialism no is that some kind of communal living where we bring all of our stuff in and divvy it up equally no is this taxation on the rich to give to the poor no it's none of that stuff this is a group of people who understood that what Jesus wanted to do with the gospel in taking it to the world was going to cost something and they were in you see we hear words today like cancel and defund that 's what happened then you see, if you were a Jew, and this is first going to Jews, if you were a Jew and maybe you had a business for a century, making bread or making you know wagons or whatever it is, raising sheep, maybe a hundred year legacy business, and now all of a sudden, you profess that Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is the Jewish Christ that 's been promised, and you 're following Jesus. <laughs> you just got canceled. Your business just got defunded. You just went from livelihood to wondering how you're gonna provide for your family. So the church said, man, we feel it. We're in this thing together. So those of you who haven't experienced it yet, let's bring it, let's help. And so they distributed to people as they had need. It's incredible, it's incredible. Now, now to understand this kind of from a, from a packaged standpoint, Three categories that we learn about this early church, which is important for us to see. The, the early church had a magnified unity. It says they were of one heart and one mind and one mission. They, this magnif- they were in this thing together, right? And secondly, we notice that there's modified priorities. A people in another passage says that they were listening and learning from the teaching of the apostles Daily. I mean, their priorities changed. Everything that was out there didn't matter anymore. We want to know what's going on in the church. We want to learn how we can be a better disciple of Jesus. We want to know how we can be vested and included in taking the saving message of the gospel of Jesus to our neighbors and around the world. So they had modified priorities, but then they had multiplied generosity. They, they, they All of a sudden, they had these generous hearts. They understood grace they understood I deserved death hell and the grave but God came to this planet and died in my place adopted me into his family and changed my forever destiny I have a heart of gratitude and so I'm going to be generous I'm going to support the mission of the church I'm in this game and so that's what it looked like now it's supernatural when that happens that's not normal and I want you to understand something. An individual who has a very real experience with Jesus no longer looks normal. He looks a little weird. They would be called Jesus freaks back in the day. We should all be a little freakish about Jesus in this world. We should be different because we're, we're to be sanctified, set apart for a particular purpose, different than the world. This is no longer, we realize this is not our home. We're pilgrims just passing through, headed to our real home, okay? And, and so when a church group When a collective of people who are really excited about the grace of Jesus in their life, that they're no longer hell bound, it changes, man, and and it's different. That's what the church should look like. We should be different. We should be different as individuals. We should be different as families. We should be different business owners. We should be different employees. We should be different when it comes to Sunday morning and participating and serving and giving to our local church. And so that's what it looked like 2,000 years ago. Now, here's what's cool. Spin the narrative forward 2,000 years ago. Here we are. And it kind of looks like this. We kind of look like that in in a different scale. But even in this church, there's magnified unity. You see, nine years ago, this revitalization began. And it takes unity to do the work of God. There's no time for murmuring and complaining. In fact, let me just go ahead and say this. If you have the spiritual gift of murmuring and complaining... There's openings in some of our other local churches, okay? That's all I'm going to say. I didn't tell you to leave. I'm just informing you, okay? Why? Because a church that understands magnified unity, they understand we don't have time for all of that. We got people out there who are dying and desperately in need of somebody telling them how they can be forgiven and set free from sin's bondage and headed to a place called heaven. They need to know that message. And we have people in here who we don't have time for murmuring and complaining because we have a job to do in here. This church needs you to serve, not to complain. And and so we, we begin to see that our church has experienced that. It takes a lot of unity. Modified priorities. When, here at this church, when people begin to understand, and, we, and you're here, and we've got workers in, just serving everywhere, when we begin to understand, we realize that the things that the world declares to be, the things that provide success, the things that provide happiness, the things that provide joy, when we, when we realize those things are empty, empty when we realize that those things leave us disenchanted, disappointed, and disconnected with the Lord's church, then all of a sudden, our priorities begin to get modified. And and thirdly, multiplied generosity. I want to tell you something, ministry in this world, it costs a lot of money, okay? Ministry costs money. It is no different than any other endeavor that you have. Now, you don't have to have money to do ministry. But it takes money corporately for the church to do ministry. It always has. The very first church, they have offerings. They're giving their money. They're selling property and giving it. And we have multiplied generosity. I'll tell you about it in just a minute. We have people who are engaged in ministry by supporting the church through stewardship, through giving. Now, it ain't all of you. In fact, it's not most of you. But it's better than most churches about 30% of us give at some level that appears to be some level of biblical stewardship, which we'll talk about in a little bit. And I don't know that, I don't know who it is, I don't know who gives what, but Tim tells me based on numbers of giving, it appears that about a third of us or a little less are giving biblical, at some level biblical stewardship. And so when you look at that, when you put those components together 2,000 years ago, The church just blew the doors off. I mean, it just ran off the rails. It is on fire. God is doing supernatural things. Lives are changed. The foundation of the church is is put together. So 2,000 years later, here we are, and it looks like that. When, When we see those things in our life, then things happen in the church. So what about the church at Sturkey Hills? Why do I say that this church has some resemblance to the church of 2,000 years ago. Well, let me just retrace our history for the last nine years. Nine years. 2014, we began this revitalization. God began the revitalization, and he included us. <clears throat> Weekly attendance has grown during the last nine years from about 50 attending per week to about 700 attending each week. Our finances have grown from about $75,000 a year to about one point four million dollars a year uh our baptisms this year not our highest year but a good year will be about 60 people you say about 60 you don't even count that number we still have a couple of weeks we have some people who are interested in being baptized it'll be about 60 people that's good and missions we we have sent over 30 people onto the foreign mission field on trips this year that's really good We've had over a hundred who have been engaged in domestic missions in Kentucky and Boston in backyard ministry this year. And so all of that has happened over the last nine years. And those are unusual numbers to say the least. Those are, those are, those are numbers that churches dream to have. And I don't take credit for it. I take credit for, for God calling me to be here. I take credit for doing my best at what I'm supposed to do. I credit God and his Holy Spirit for doing a great work. Because Jesus said, I'm going to build my church. And it's implied I'm going to build it with you or I'm going to build it without you. But I'm going to build it and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so, so God is building his church. Now, so, so here we are. It's 2023, nine years into this thing. What does the future look like? It looks so much better. It looks so much greater. And it has been fantastic I want you to understand something. The vision that God has given me and this leadership team here, it's, 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 it just gets much bigger. What does the vision look like? It's a big vision, which includes revival to our church and our area, where it's a place where hearts are stirred deep down and convictional compromises eradicated and repentance of sin rises up and lives are changed, changed and strongholds are broken and relationships are restored and families and uh, are stronger and, and fathers are great spiritual leaders and Sunday is no longer a day to check a religious box but an opportunity to encounter collectively together our great and mighty God through Jesus his son and it, we, we look forward all week long for another opportunity to come together to worship King Jesus. A big vision includes a church that's on fire about the gospel A place where most of us are sharing the gospel each week, where our conversations are saturated with Jesus, and Jesus just permeates our life. A place where not only are we sharing the gospel to people out there, we're inviting people to come and see what God is doing in here, and so the church continues to grow. Big vision of a church doing battle on her knees, where we understand the greatest form of warfare, spiritual warfare, is not Physical, it's spiritual, and it's on our knees. And so we understand, we dive into prayer. A big vision where every person knows what part of the body they're supposed to play. And they show up weekly and play their part to make the body complete and fluid and to make it operate like it should. A big vision where everyone is meeting in groups and, 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 and getting together in circles, finding community and finding a way to be connected to the church a big vision where 30 people aren't on the mission field each year but a hundred are over and a hundred people aren't in the local mission field a year but over 500 are doing local missions each year each year a big vision that includes the revitalization of another dying or dead church just like this revitalization not just one but multiple churches like this that we get to be a part of revitalization a big vision of Jesus continuing to build his church by saving people here and in our area, by seeing hundreds of baptisms, by bringing the unchurched and the dechurched and the disenchanted and the church hurt back into community through, with God through the church. But I want to tell you something big vision comes with big needs, big vision comes with big needs needs and so here's some of the big needs that we have we want to support other ministries domestically and around the world at a different level than we ever have how do we do it now for every dollar that that you give uh 10 cents of it goes to the mission field so this year our revenue will be about 1.4 million $140,000 one hundred and forty thousand dollars will be distributed to missions, uh, endeavors locally and around the world. It could be cho- choices, it could be the hospice center down here it could be um, it could be uh, one vision in Brazil and Dominican Republic, it could be hope through him in Honduras, it could be incai 's children in Africa, uh, whatever it is, we want to support them and ten percent of our money goes there. so we want our offerings to grow, and we want to be able to give more, a greater percentage to support other ministries. We want to pay off our mortgage. We want to pave additional parking. That's about $125,000. We want to install a stairway to get to the sports field. That's a $35,000 project. We need a new bus. We need a bus. A bus to pick up our senior adults. A a bus to pick up our children who are in our elementary schools who come over here for Bible release time. A bus to carry our students for events and activities they go to. That's $115,000. Uh, we, we want to expand our playground to accommodate for all the little boys and girls that you saw last week in this Christmas program, 150, 160 people strong. We need to expand our facilities, our playground. And so I want you to understand, those are not just pie in the sky, exaggerated dreams about something we would like to see happen. Those are visions, visions of hope. And the word hope in the Greek is elpis, which means a vision of an expectation of our mighty God. These are things that God is going to do. I can stand here and say those things God will do if we're faithful. And if we continue to track like we've been doing, God will do what he's told us he's going to do. Let me tell you something about God. God will never ask us, he'll never ask you to do one thing that he won't provide the resources to accomplish it. Never, never. If he says, I want you to do this and you do it, he'll provide a way. I've seen it time and time again. We see it time and time again in Scripture. And just like that, Acts chapters 1 through 4 looks amazing. And just like that, the church at Sturkey Hills looks amazing. And then right in the middle of the excitement and the goodness, we keep reading. And we read one of the strangest, most curious passages in the whole New Testament. It's right here in Acts chapter 4 and 5. You see, in the Bible, when the Bible was written, it wasn't in chapters. Chapters and verses are to help us navigate through it. And so really, the separation there is a little bit awkward because the end of chapter 4 really is connected to the narrative of, of the beginning of chapter 5. And, and, so, and so the title of the message on the back of your life guide is this, A Tale of Two Givers, A Tale of Two of two givers. Now, if you're guest today, let me just go ahead and say this: If you get if, if this is your first time here and you say mm-hmm, visited church and uh, the preacher's talking about money again, well, that just tells me you don't visit this church very much. Okay, so thanks for the compassion. Uh, number two, don't 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 get mad and so say I'm not going back to church. You talked about money. I preach expositionally. What does that mean? I go through books of the Bible. Now I'll break away from it next week. It'll be Christmas Eve, but the following week we'll be right back in Acts. Okay. I don't pick what I'm gonna preach on, it tells me. It tells me six months from now what I'm gonna preach on. It tells me tomorrow, uh, next Sunday what I'm gonna preach on. Uh, excuse me, the following Sunday what I'm gonna preach on. And so I'm preaching on the tale of two givers today. You know why? Because we're in Acts chapter five, finishing four, and it ta- tells us this story about a tale of two givers. And so I don't run from it. I don't hide from preaching on money. And if you're upset with that, you just get over it, okay? Because the Bible talks about your resources. Do you know that? Jesus taught about your resources. 16 of the 38 parables that Jesus taught had to do with money and your personal resources. Huh, take it up with Jesus. Did, would you tell Jesus that? You talking about money again, Jesus? You wouldn't say that to him. You just say that to me. Okay? So you need to get over it. Number two, in the Gospels, 288 verses... Refer to material possessions. That's one out of every 10 verses in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In the whole Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, there's 500 verses about prayer, 500 verses about faith, over 2,000 verses about money and possessions. Why does God, that preacher, why is he always talking about money? Because God knows that it's all his, and he can talk about whatever he wants to talk about. And God knows that if he can get your heart right in terms of your possessions, he stands a better chance of having your heart right regarding other things. And for me as a preacher, that means I'm a pastor. That means I'm a shepherd. That means I'm supposed to teach whatever God's word says to teach. And so today we're going to talk about a tale of two givers. Just say amen, make you feel better, make me feel better. Okay, that's good enough. All I needed was one, but I got 10, so it's good. So first, let me introduce you to giver number one in this tale of two givers. A giver number one is in chapter four, and he's amazing, man. This guy is rock solid. He is the rich froning of stewardship, okay? Listen what happens in verse 36 of chapter four. So Joseph, who's a Levite, who was also a native of Cyprus, called by the apostles Barnabas, which is translated son of encouragement. He sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and placed it at the apostles' feet. Pretty simple story. Sounds, doesn't sound that, uh, that supernatural. I mean, other people have sold property, right? It's a little bit different. You see, in this, in this passage, we've got to understand the context. It says, it says this guy's name's Joseph. He's a Jew. He is a Levite, or he was in, of the Levitical family line. But he's also raised in Cyprus. So there's a thing called the diaspora, which is the dispersion of the Jews over time when when they would be taken over by Babylon or uh, Persia or whoever it is, Rome, they would get dispersed. And so this family was in Cyprus. Now he's no longer following God in a Levitical way. How do we know? Because he owned property. A Levite was not allowed to own property because they were to trust God for every possession. And, but this one owns some property. So we begin to see that here's a guy who's backslidden from God. He's not living his calling. He's not living his bloodline. He's not living the Levitical life. He's just living a successful, ordinary Jewish life in Cyprus. But it is on this day something happens. You see, it doesn't tell us what happened to Barnabas, but I'll share it at the end. Something big happened to this Levite. No longer was it some kind of religious uh, historical uh concept called uh the the tribe of Levi he met Jesus he met Jesus Christ and Jesus radically rocked his world no longer was it about a religion about God it was about a relationship with God he met Jesus and he at this point he's like I am in I, I see this, man. I know what Jesus did for me. And I want to do whatever I can to contribute to spreading this message to the world. So the Bible says he sold some property. But it's interesting. There's a Greek word here. doesn't appear anywhere else in Acts. Every time they sell something, it's a, di- a different Greek word. But in this case, what old Joseph named Barnabas, what he sold, the Greek word is agros. One time in Acts. It is a farm. It is a countryside. It is a large plot of land. It is a cultivated and fertile piece of property. He sold big. He doubled down. He's in. I'm not selling a piece of it. I'm selling an all of it. I'm not giving a part of it. I'm giving all of it. Why? Because he understood grace. God had taken this backslidden Levite rocked his world, brushed him over with grace, introduced him to the family of God, and set him on fire with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You say, how are you getting that out of that little passage? You got to keep reading, and I'll show you where I get it in just a few minutes. And so so they would name him Barnabas, which means the son of encouragement. Let me explain something. If, if God puts a, a vision in your heart, a mission in your soul, and you start trying to pursue God and you don't have the resources you because I said earlier God tells you to do something you you, if you're walking by faith you don't have all the answers to the questions and you don't have all the needs met just yet so you just step out into the unknown and you watch and wait and hope and pray and expect God to fill the need and along comes Barnabas alongside these missionaries and said oh are we taking up an offering I'm in yeah hold on man so he goes back sells this massive piece of property Brings it back, lays it out at the feet of the apostles. No questions asked. He said, I'm in with you guys here. Use it for the kingdom. You're talking about an encouragement. That's an encouragement, man. These guys are, they've already given everything they have. And they're pursuing God in their calling. And then people say, I believe in you. I believe in the mission God has given you. I believe in the mission of the gospel saving the world. I don't want to be a spectator in that. I don't want to talk about how good it is. I want to be in the game. I want to support it. I am in with you. It's an encouragement. I got encouragers in here. I got people in the church who just they're generous. They just give. And it's an encouragement. That doesn't mean if you don't give you're a discouragement. It just means for people who give. There's some people who just encourage with, 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 with kind words, you know. I mean, I'll preach a message, and I feel like it was terrible. So I'm like, man, that, that really spoke to me. Have you been reading my mail? And I'm like, that couldn't have spoken to you. That must have been God because that was terrible, right. And, and they do it with giving. They say, hey, you know, I, 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 I'm, I'm entertained by this every week. Tim takes care of all our finances and he'll send me a, a text and he'll say our giving for the week was this and I just like to say Lord that's amazing I'm, I, that's amazing nine years ago when there was $75,000 in the annual kitty and today there's 1.4 million that's just funny that's funny math right and it just gets funnier every month or every year because more and more people are starting to experiment with biblical stewardship and God blesses those who do and then the stewardship continues <coughs> And it becomes a great encouragement. So now we know the first giver in the tale of two givers. And I just want you to tuck old Barnabas away. Let's just set him aside. We understand giver number one. And now we wanna look at giver number two. But before we do, let me unpack something, explain something to you. When God is doing great things, the devil is too. When God is moving and shaking and stirring, the devil is too. When the disciples get excited, the demons do, do, do too. And that's what we're going to see. Everything is going good 2,000 years ago. And everything is going good here, but we need to be careful as we move forward. Giver number two, Acts chapter 5. Now, in the New English translation, if you read an NASB or New King James, it may say, but. Your translation may say, on the other hand. You see, now we're going to be introduced to an alternative giving position. An alternative view. Stewardship. It says, On the other hand, a man named Ananias, together with Sapphira, his wife, sold a piece of property. Now, on the surface, it's okay. There's no, this is the beauty of the church. There is no required giving. You are not required to give a red penny. You are not required to pray. You are not required to read your Bible. You are not required to witness, you are not required to come here every Sunday. All of those are disciplines that will help you experience the fullness of the Christian life now. You got heaven waiting on you, but you can experience some of heaven now when we implement disciplines like prayer, Bible study, faithfulness, and stewardship. I'm just telling you it's real, okay? So so but you're not obligated and they weren't obligated. So on the surface, it starts out good. He says, okay, Ananias and Sapphira, they stepped up to the plate, and they're gonna give some money, and they're gonna sell a piece of property and give some money. Now, let me pause right here. It says that they were together, which is kind of cool. That's positive. Ananias and his wife, Sarah, they're skipping into this thing together, man. They're, they're gonna be part of this thing together, right? And, and you know, the institution of marriage is, is designed beautifully that, that way, that, that the man is supposed to be the spiritual leader of the home, and, and it's just the way it is. And when a man leads spiritually well, the family is better off and they're blessed. But there's times when this man who's supposed to be a spiritual leader, he just, he chokes, man. He just drops the ball, okay? And he has a wife. God has given him a wife. And you know what the wife is called in Genesis? A helper. You know why God called her a helper? God knows men. Men need help. That's what that's all about. And so when the spiritual leader's not doing right, when an opportunity to do something comes up and it's, and, and it's just sideways of God's will, Sapphira should raise her hand and say, hey, Ananias, are you sure we're supposed to do that? Now let me just go on the record and say, I hate when that happens. I hate when Kendra says, I don't know, are you sure that's right? Well, I don't know, let me think about it. And I walk away and I'm thinking, man, she's right. I hate when that happens. I, am I the only man that hates when your wife's right? I'm the only guy? Well, I'll repent of it, y'all perfect people, okay? No, we hate that. But that's why—that's the way God designed us. And so we see them together. They're stepping into this thing together, and, and they're doing this thing. They're, they're kind of repeating what they've already seen done. And when we see in the Bible, we see couples throughout the Bible who fail. Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve are in the garden of perfection, the garden of bliss, sinless, intimate with God every morning in the cool of the day. Along comes the serpent. Scripture tells us in Hebrews that Eve was deceived, Adam was not. Eve partook of the forbidden fruit. But you know what the rest of the story says? Adam was standing there next to her, and ultimately he did the same thing. It was a perfect opportunity for the man of the house to say, hey, serpent, we got no room for you here. This is, we, we don't listen to you. We walk with God. He didn't say a word. He filed suit. He did the same thing. You continue to read in the Bible. You find Abraham and Sarah. Abraham and Sarah are old, like a hundred. No kids. God said, you're going to have a son. And they're looking at each other saying, man, you're getting old. And so Sarah has this wonderful idea. Abraham, this ain't happening. Let's expedite the process. I have this lady that works for us. She's a beautiful lady. Why don't I bring her in and you can have a relationship with her? What a stupid idea. Okay, now we have the whole Islamic world, okay, because, because of that. Now, Abraham could have been the man. He was the man. He could have said, Sarah, I know you're old. You're still a fox to me. Everything's going to be all right. I don't know how this is going to happen, but whenever it does, it's going to be a good day. So let's just wait, right? He didn't say that. He said, okay, and next thing you know, everything's upside down. You keep reading, you find David, man after God's own heart, goes out on his porch one day, and Bathsheba's taking a shower out on the back porch. Ladies, that's never a good idea. And men, if you ever see that, go back in and check ESPN, find you a game. He didn't do that. He didn't do that. He, she's beautiful. He called for her. He had a relationship with her, got her pregnant, murdered, murdered her husband. All the while, all it took was for one of those people in that relationship to raise their hand and say, is this what God wants us to do? Are we sure this is what God wants for us? Because I think he might want more. I, I think if we did another way that we would be blessed, I'm not sure if this is gonna land in the camp of blessing or not. And we see it throughout the Bible. And so Ananias and Sapphira, they step into this thing together. Why? Because no doubt, oh, by the way, this, part, this property is not an, an agros. It's another Greek word, which means just a portion, a fragment of property, okay? No doubt they had heard people talk about, old oh, Barney, man, that guy, he's the man. I mean, he sold this massive piece of property, brought it and just laid it down and says, I'm with you guys, whatever you need to do with it, it's all good with me. Walked away and everybody started talking about him, Right? And so it's, you know, there was a movie out once upon a time that I love called Noche Libre, you know, and he made this comedy. He says, don't you want a little piece of the glory to see what it tastes like? Right. And I believe that, I believe Ananias and Sapphira, they wanted a little piece of the glory. They looked around and says, man, look how they're talking about Barnabas. I mean, look at how they treat him now. Everybody. And so they wanted, they wanted a little piece of the action. So, so they sold a little piece of property and, and they gave. Now, this, this passage is not about somebody selling property and giving it. That's great. It's not even about selling property and keeping part of it. It's not about keeping all of it. This whole thing, is just it's, it's a heart thing. It's about integrity of the heart. Just being real before God and real before our family and real before our people and our church. It's integrity of the heart. Verse 2 says, but Ananias kept back for himself part of the proceeds with his wife's knowledge. And he brought only part of it and placed it at the apostles' feet. Still no problem. There's no rule that says you can't sell part of it and give part, keep part of it and give part of it. No rule for that. It's a problem of the integrity of the heart. How do I know? Verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart. You see, here's how it works. We have good intentions sometimes. We have good desires. We want to be obedient to God in this area or that area. We want to dive in deeper in our walk with Jesus, man. We, we want to, our spiritual life to develop. And I'm telling you, when we do that, the enemy hates it. And so he shows up and he does the same thing every time. He presents temptations, To allure us in the three categories of flesh desire. There's only three categories. Scripture says there's three categories of flesh desire lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. That's the the three categories that he used on Eve. Eve saw the apple, she said it's good to the eyes. Eve saw the apple, she said it'd be good for food. Eve saw the apple and said it'll make me wise. The three categories. Jesus goes after he's baptized. He's taken straightway to the mountain of temptation where Satan himself tempts him with the three categories of flesh desire. The same thing is true for Ananias and Sapphira. He just, all he has to do is allure them in the areas where they're most vulnerable, fleshly desires. He says, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? There's one Peter's like, bro, it's one thing to lie to me. Pre-Jesus, B.C., before Christ in my life, I was a fisherman. <clears throat> I told a fisherman's tale. I was a liar extraordinaire, okay? You look up liar in the Bible, got my picture up in there, okay? He could identify. But Ananias isn't lying to Peter. He's not lying to the church. He's lying to God. And that's why Peter calls him out. And he says, And you keep back for yourself part of the proceeds from the sale of the land. How have you thought this up, this deed in your heart? You've not lied to people, but to God. He goes on, he says, before it was sold, didn't it belong to you? And he says, and when it was sold, was not the money at your disposal? He said, listen, you you didn't even have to sell it. And you certainly weren't required to give anything. But you made this big deal, apparently, You made this big deal that you were like Barnabas, giving everything. Oh, look at me, right? Then he goes on in verse 5. This is where it gets real ugly. This is a bad day to get called to the principal's office. It says in verse 5, when Ananias heard these words, he collapsed and he died. Kind of hate to see that one. It says, and great fear gripped all who heard about this story. So the young men came. They wrapped him up. They carried him out, and they buried him. This is in the Bible. This this is the early church. Things are on fire. Things are going great. People are getting saved. People are getting baptized. People are taking the gospel around the world. And then we read this. It's like he showed up, and Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, knew that he had lied to God, and he asked him, have you done this? Ananias didn't own it. He said, yeah, we sold the property. He acted like he'd done exactly what he told people he had done. And it's almost like Peter said, bye. And he collapsed. And then Peter said, you go dig a hole. You wrap him up in that cloth. You carry him out there and throw him in the hole and you cover him up. Bingo, done. I mean, Ananias shows up for five verses his intro, his outro, his whole life, summed up, five verses. Now it goes on. The, the story continues. It says now that three hours later, after verse 7, after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, but she did not know what had happened. Peter said to her, uh, tell me, were the two of you paid this amount for the land And Sapphira said, yes, that much. And Peter then told her, why have you agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. At once she collapsed at his feet and died. So when the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. What, what had they done so grievous? They lied and they tested God. I have three brothers, they're awesome, they're great guys. Growing up in the same household, man, you know what we did a lot? Fight. It's what four boys in one house do, we fight all the time. And it was awesome, okay? And my dad was a contractor He built houses, worked hard six days a week, and he would come in. My mom would have this big supper. We'd all eat. He'd sit down to read the newspaper, and we would fight. And after a little while fighting, my dad would have enough. He'd say, he'd turn the paper like this. He'd go, hey, boys, enough. He'd start reading this paper. We'd calm it down for a minute. Next thing you know, here we go. We're after it again. Now, the whole time, we're testing him because what we did not want we, we didn't mind him saying, boys, that's enough. We didn't mind him saying it loud. But we didn't want him to get out of his chair. Because if he got out of his chair, it's time to run. Okay? Because the wrath was coming down. All right? We were testing him. Listen, we're not supposed to test God. We're supposed to hear what God says in our life, instructions from the word of God, <clears throat> compelled upon our heart by the Holy Spirit, and respond to it. Just like that. Not hold out. You see, we, li- we live in a world, and Clark knows this, that wants to live in the gray land. Students you- you are great about this. I remember young people would ask me, so wh- how far is too far on a date? The better question is, how little should we do on a, get- on a date? You know, and the guy's always thinking, well, you know, we need to, you know. So, so we don't want to live in the gray area, the fog. We want to live in the, the bright land where there's truth, and transparency, and holiness, that's where we wanna live. Ananias and a Sapphira are a picture of what it looks like when we test God. Now let me be clear about something. Are, are we never allowed to test God? Sure we are. There's one place that I'm aware of, and if you know of another, you can let me know, but I think there's only one. And this opportunity to test God has to do with our money, of, 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 which is kind of odd. We can test God with our resources. It's not testing God in holding back. It's testing God in giving. In fact, here's what it says in Malachi chapter 3. God is speaking. He said, hey, can a, can a person rob God? And he says, uh, you indeed are robbing me. But you say, how are we robbing you? And he says, God says, in tithes and contributions or offerings. And you are bound for judgment because you are robbing me. This whole nation is guilty of this. That's pretty direct, isn't it? It's pretty direct. But the beauty of God is that he doesn't leave us in the judgment. He wants to open up the doors of grace and abundance. Listen to what he says. The only place we can test God. He says, verse 10, Bring the entire tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my temple. And you can test me in this matter, says the Lord of heaven's army, to see if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing for you until there's no room for it all. Now, now I want to tell you something. My wife and I have been tithers for our whole life together. In fact, I've been tithing at some level, trying to, since I was in the third grade. I had a paper out in the third grade. Norris, Tennessee, me and my older brother. He was fourth grade. And we collected on Thursday. My dad said, I'm going to let you do this paper route. and will put you a little money in your pocket. He said, but on Sunday, whatever you get on Thursday, you take 10% of that and you put it in the offering plate. And if you stop doing that, I'm not going to let you work anymore. Well, we wanted to make a little money. So we started tithing in third and fourth grade. It never went away. So I was blessed. I was taught that. And I've walked in blessing my whole life. Okay? You can test God. How much can you test God? You ready listen? You're all witnesses. This is online, whichever camera's on, okay? If you're a member here and you start, you've never given before, and you say, you know what, I wish that was true. The preacher says it's true, so I'm gonna back it up. You start giving 10% of your income and six months from now, if your life is not blessed and your resources are not blessed, you contact Tim, our executive pastor, and he'll give your money back. Now, let me be clear about that. Don't you show up six months from now and say, I gave a hundred thousand in cash over the six months, last six months, I'd like to get it back. You're lying, you can go to another church. Okay? We ain't playing no games with it. That would be it's you, you say that's kind of harsh. I could do like Peter, just kill you. Okay? I'm telling you, it's real. God promises it. He says we can test him in this area. And so, how do we how do we finish this up? Here's the deal. About 30% of us are are tithers or close to it. How do I know? Tim told me. I don't know. But Tim knows. He tracks it all. Okay, I don't know who gives what. Okay. I know there's about a third of us that that are biblical stewards or managers of God's money. And this message is not... To squeeze more blood out of the turnip. This message is to get more turnips out of the bag. Okay? To encourage you to to be vested in God's ministry. And I know it's expensive to live. I did some research this week about how expensive it is to live in today's world. The average car in 2023 for the first three quarters of the year, the average car in America, new car, sold for 47000 $100. That means if you drive a car less than that, you're below average. Isn't that crazy? The average new car payment in America for the first three quarters was $839. Oh, excuse me, $729. The average used car payment in America was $529. The average home in America in the first three quarters sold for $420,000. So much for starter homes, okay? It costs you $3,000 as an average every year just to put fuel in your car. I know it's expensive. I know, I know that most months there's more bills coming in to pay than bills coming in to pay with. I understand that. But I understand that God's on a different economy. God has a kingdom economy where he provides our needs and you can trust him. If you can trust him with your soul forever, you can trust him with your money next month. It's just, it's just the way it is. And as a pastor, it means I'm a shepherd. It means I'm, my job is to lead you to fluffy green pastures and cool, clear water. And the Bible is full of green grass and clear water. And if I never show you where it's at, You'll spend your whole life missing the abundance and the blessing of God. And so that's why we talk about it. Now, what happened to the players in this tale of two givers? Well, we know Ananias and Sapphira, they hit the bigs, man. They made, they made, it, they made it into the eternal, uh, infallible, inerrant word of God. They had a, a, a seven-verse run at it, okay, a 10-verse run at it. Okay, they were here and they were gone, dead. And then we see the church. It says the church was gripped with fear. This is a reverential fear. You don't have to fear the devil, you don't have to fear the world, you don't have to fear sickness, but you're supposed to have a reverential fear for Almighty God. And it says the early church, man, they they were gripped with fear because it says they were gripped with fear when they heard this story. Can I be honest with you? When I was preparing this message, I hit a spot where I was gripped with fear because I had to check my own holiness. I had to check where I was with my finding. God's been good to me, okay? And, and, and I tell people, say, well, where do we start giving? You just do what with the Old Testament. A tithe is 10%. Whatever you make, you move the decimal point over one dot or one digit and you're there, okay? That's entry level. That's the launch pad for giving. But for those of us that understand it, it's time to move forward and I gotta do that. He's 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 moved in my heart. I'm gripped with fear because I don't I don't want to be the one holding it back. I don't want to be the one that shows up in chapter five and the brakes are slammed on in the movement of God's kingdom into the world. And so we see that in Ananias and Sapphira, we see they're they're at. We see the church, what they look like. What about old Joseph the Levite from Cyprus? What about this guy named Barnabas? Oh man. When he was in, when he said he was in, when he committed those resources, he didn't stop there. Barnabas would be the first uh, non-apostolic missionary in the church, in, in history. Barnabas would go on and be an evangelist and a missionary. Barnabas is the one who, after Saul got converted on the road to Damascus, Barnabas took him and trained him how to be a Christian evangelist. And then he took Paul, took him to the disciples. He said, listen, boys, I know you hate this guy. Okay, he was persecuting the church. He was killing people, putting them in jail. I'm here to tell you he's the real deal. I'm here to tell you that Jesus that lives in me, the Jesus that lives in you, is the Jesus that lives in him. Barnabas is like, I've heard him preach the gospel and see people saved. You can take him in and add him to your crew. Okay? He goes on and he goes on the first missionary journey with Paul, I mean he supports him. And then along comes this guy named John Mark who is his cousin. And John Mark gets discouraged in ministry to the place where he's going to quit. Barnabas comes alongside him, encourages him back into the ministry and John Mark would be none other than Mark who wrote the Gospel of Mark. Barnabas would take up money and send offerings to churches that were struggling. Now here's the deal every bit of that Ananias and Sapphira a church gripped with fear and Barnabas the missionary all of that launched from the platform of how they handled their money in a tale of two givers and so here's the question who do you identify with the most? now I'm going to help you I'm going to do something we've never done before I don't think we've ever done it. I certainly had never done it. Never been challenged to do it. Next Sunday is Christmas Eve. Every year we do Christmas, right? And every year you buy presents for people. I know you do. Now maybe you're a Scrooge and you don't, but you know, maybe we'll get you some, okay? Every year we buy Christmas for people. I don't know that we ever give anything to Jesus and it's his party. I was thinking about that. When I was growing up, you'd go to a birthday party with your friends. Ten people in there, it's Jimmy's birthday party. What would it have been like if everybody in the room got a gift and old Jimmy over there, all he got to do is blow the candles out. Next year he'd say, Let's let's forego the birthday party. It ain't that big of a deal. But every year we have Christmas. So I want to challenge you. And hear me when I say, you don't have to give anything. It's not required to give anything. This isn't club membership, okay? This isn't this isn't uh your payment on a on a mortgage or a loan. This is a challenge to step into the grace of God through giving. How do you do that? Maybe this year you spend $2,000 on everybody total for Christmas. You could give Jesus $2,000 just to let him know you love him as much as everybody else combined. (laughs) That's pretty cool. Maybe you can't do that. Maybe you're already broke. And I'm not asking you to borrow money and, and give Jesus borrowed money. I'm not saying that. But i'm saying maybe you say okay i love my wife the most and i spent five hundred dollars on her so i'm going to let god know i love him as much as anybody that he's ever given me in my life so i'm going to give 500 dollars maybe you don't have any money maybe you don't have anything it's okay because it's not about giving listen it's about the integrity of the heart and maybe the integrity of the heart for you is to sit down with your spouse or with yourself and lay out your finances and say, I need to get this in order so that I can be giving to God because he's given it all to me. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes as we finish. God, we thank you for this amazing chapter, even the scary part. God, we thank you that how you, you are a God who provides and you grace us and you're patient with us, but there's a place where that runs out and you get real serious about holiness. And, and God, I come before you in front of all this church and confess that I need to be more holy in my life and, and, and need to eliminate things that are, that are holding me back from everything you want for me. But God, I, I'm not afraid of challenging our people to dive in, to test you, to trust you, and to see what you do in their lives. And God, I thank you for this time. I thank you, God, that we can learn from other people's mistakes. I thank you, God, that your Holy Spirit is real real kind to our heart and that you tell us and give us instructions. God, help us be faithful and obedient to do what it is you would have us to do. God, most of all, if there's someone in this room today that maybe they know who Jesus is, they know the facts, the stories, maybe they understand some things about religion, but they don't know you, God, in a real and personal way, it's my prayer that your Holy Spirit would gently invite them into your forever family that on this day they would hear that voice from deep inside saying come to me ye who are weary and heavy laden and I'll give you rest and God you'll forgive their sin you'll come into their life and you'll save them forever and we'll give you praise for it and for the rest of us Jesus we just want to say Merry Christmas thank you for all that you've done for us. Help us do what you would have us to do in this season. In Jesus' name, God's people said amen. We hope that God spoke to you through this message. If you enjoyed the message, be sure to subscribe to our weekly podcast and visit our website at sturkey.church to find all the latest information and upcoming events. Be sure to join us again next week. Until then, may God bless you.